Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now here's Pastor Jeff. Well, welcome to everyone, and it's great to have you tuning in to this podcast. I heard about a man who was talking to his family doctor, and he said, hey, doc, I think my wife is going deaf. The doctor said, well, here's something you can try to test her hearing. Stand away from her and ask her a question. If she doesn't answer, move a few steps closer and then ask again. Keep repeating that process until she finally answers. Then you know how hard of hearing she really is. So the man went home and he's going to try it out. He walks in the door and he says, hi, honey, what's for dinner? He doesn't hear an answer, so he moves closer to her. Honey, what's for dinner? Still, he hears no answer. He repeats this several times until he's standing just two feet away uh, from her. Finally, she turns around and she says, for the 10th time, I told you we're having meatloaf. It seems to me that many people today are looking, but they don't really see. You know, they're existing, but they don't really live. And I guess in the words of the classic Simon and Garfunkel song, people are hearing without listening. That's from the great song, The Sounds of Silence. Well, back in the first century when Jesus spoke, most everyone heard him, but very few people were actually listening. Even today, two things are required for effective sermons, good preaching and good listening. As we return to our series in Mark chapter 4, we come to a significant shift in the ministry of Jesus as he begins to speak in parables. This prompts a couple of key questions. What is a parable, and why did Jesus use parables in his teaching? Back in Matthew 13, his disciples asked him that very question, why do you speak in parables? The answer to their question was the result of three particular circumstances from our previous chapter, Mark chapter 3. There in verse 7, we read that a great multitude followed Jesus. This included Jews and Gentiles from inside and outside the land of Israel. So there were tens of thousands of people coming to see and hear Jesus, and especially to be healed by him. But of those thousands of people, how many of them were genuine believers? Not many. Then in verse 22 of the previous chapter, we find the unsaved religious leaders saying of Jesus, He has Beelzebub, or Satan, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. So now we have the scribes accusing Jesus of performing his miraculous healings in the power of the devil and on behalf of the kingdom of hell. They attributed the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the working of Satan. And then finally in Mark 3.33, after being told that his family was outside asking for him, Jesus responded by looking around at his disciples and saying, "'Here are my mother and my brothers.'" For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. So while Jesus had thousands of followers and a genuinely concerned family, he identified his true spiritual family as those who do the will of God. Well, all three of those circumstances, in my opinion, contributed to the reason why Jesus began speaking in parables. It was like a giant conversion that brings us now to 
Mark chapter 4 and to verse 1, where we read these words. Again, Jesus began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the water. Then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened that as he sowed, some of the seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some of that seed fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And then some other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. And then finally, other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And then Jesus said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him uh, with the twelve asked him about the parable. And Jesus said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they turn and their sins be forgiven. And then in verses 13 to 20 in the same chapter, Jesus goes on to explain the meaning of this parable to his disciples. So our message title, based on this first parable, will be called Four Types of Dirt. In verse 2, we read that Jesus taught the crowds by many parables. So let's address our first question, what is a parable? Our English word parable comes from the Greek word parabole, which means to place or cast alongside of. So a parable is a story that uses both comparison and contrast to make a point. Parables have been described as being earthly stories with heavenly meaning, and while that's true, it goes deeper than that. In his parables, Jesus took everyday pictures or stories or illustrations from life, and then he used them to reveal important spiritual truths. It's important to note that one-third of Jesus' recorded teachings comes in the form of parables. The word parable is used 50 times in the New Testament, mostly in the first three Gospels. Teaching with parables or using parables to make a point was not something that began with Jesus. It was actually a common method of teaching for the rabbis, and we can go back further and find them in the Old Testament. For example, the parable or the story of the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37, or you'll remember when Nathan the prophet went to confront King David and his sin And he started out with a parable that he told to David about a little lamb. So Jesus didn't invent the use of parables, but he did use them frequently in his teaching. The question then is, why did Jesus use parables in his teachings? The three main reasons for his parables were, make note of this, to reveal, to conceal, and to fulfill. So let's talk about each of those, starting with Jesus wanting to reveal. Here in verse 11, on the subject of why he was using parables, Jesus said to his disciples, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. Parables were then intended to help genuine believers understand spiritual truths more easily. Even when a parable confused the disciples, the explanation of it made 
biblical truth more clear to them. Being genuine believers, the disciples wanted Jesus to explain the parables. They wanted to understand, but that really wasn't the case with the unsaved crowd. It was basically in one ear and out the other. A second reason for Jesus using parables was to conceal. Now, this sounds like a contradiction to revealing, but it's not. The revealing, listen, was for the believers. He wanted to reveal the truth clearer to the believers, but he was concealing the truth of his teaching from the unsaved and making it more obscure. Why? Well, going back to verse 11, Jesus also said to those outside, all things come in parables, referring to the unsaved. Jesus had these massive amounts of people following him everywhere, you know, literally tens of thousands of them. Most of them were seeking a healing, and while they heard the things that Jesus spoke, they weren't really, for the most part, listening or comprehending. So by using parables, certain truths were concealed from the unsaved. This was both an act of judgment and an act of mercy. It was an act of judgment in the sense that Jesus no longer spoke openly and plainly about spiritual truths to people who either weren't listening or were refusing to believe. For most of them, they simply wanted a healing, but not the healer. So we have a form of judgment, but at the same time, it was also an act of mercy. That's because if Jesus continued to share openly and clearly about spiritual truths that they had no intention in receiving or believing, it would only make those people more guilty and accountable for the rejection. So mercifully, Jesus concealed many of these truths from the unsaved. Therefore, many careless listeners would hear Jesus speak a parable, shrug their shoulders, and walk away. But others like, well, for example, Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he sincerely wanted to know the truth. He was confused, but he was sincere and wanted to know, and he continued pursuing uh, Jesus for understanding. In verse 9, Jesus says to everyone listening, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That expression is found eight times in the Gospels, and then Jesus also used it at the end of his letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. So when Jesus spoke, everyone heard, but not everyone was listening. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, of course, everyone has ears, but Jesus was talking about those who were truly listening. The unsaved crowd could hear physically, but they were deaf spiritually. An old Yiddish proverb says, There is no one as deaf as he who will not listen. You might want to make note of three things that Jesus said about hearing and listening in the Gospels, and this very much applies to us today. Check out what Jesus said. So here in verse 9, Jesus warns us to make sure that we hear. In other words, to make sure that we're actually listening. Then in Mark 4.24, Jesus says, take heed of what you hear. You need to listen carefully to God's truth and steer clear of Satan's lies. And then later on in Luke 8.18, Jesus cautions us to take care how we hear and to do so with a view to listen, learn, and obey. So again, Jesus tells us to make sure we're careful that we do hear what we hear and how we hear. Now, a third reason why Jesus used so many parables, first it was to reveal to believers, then to conceal from the unsaved, but also to fulfill. Here in verse 12, Jesus quoted Isaiah about the unsaved people seeing but not perceiving, hearing but not understanding, 
because they didn't want to turn from their sins. So in using parables, Jesus was also fulfilling prophecy. From that, we have a better understanding of why Jesus spoke in parables, and we can also see this convergence of events that led to Jesus speaking in parables. Thousands of people coming to be near Jesus, but most of them are unsaved, and speaking in parables then sort of, well, I guess you could say it separated the goats from the sheep. Then the religious leaders accused Jesus of operating in the power of Satan, so speaking in parables became an act of judgment against them, keeping them from understanding. And then finally, the unsaved siblings of Jesus, they were his physical family, but not his spiritual family at that point. So the true brothers and sisters were made closer by understanding the truth of his parables. Before we move on, it's helpful to note in verse 11 that parables reveal, notice, the mystery of the kingdom of God. When we think of a mystery today, it's not used in the same way. Mysteries today are like when we ask questions like why people pay money to visit the top of tall buildings and then put money in the telescope to look back down on the ground at the things that are down there where they were. Or if Wile E. Coyote had the money to buy all those contraptions from the Acme company to try and trap the Roadrunner, why didn't he just use that money to buy food? Anyway, those are different kinds of mysteries. You get the idea. The biblical term of mystery in the New Testament describes truth previously hidden in the Old Testament, but now revealed in the New Testament. Paul used the word mystery 21 times in his epistles as he was explaining certain spiritual truths. The mystery here that is beginning to be revealed is about the kingdom of God. That is to say that the kingdom which had been promised for centuries, Jesus was now revealing how and when that would come about. In fact, Jesus began his public ministry by declaring, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So in many of his parables, Jesus would begin by saying things like, the kingdom of God is like a man scattering seed on the ground, or the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The spiritual kingdom of God was in the hearts of the believers by faith in Christ and the gospel, and later on, the physical kingdom of God will be here on earth during the millennium. We look forward to that. Remember, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray, saying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, again, here in verse 1, as the masses and multitudes were pressing in on Jesus, he got into a boat, and he was floating in the boat close to shore, and then from there he spoke to the people. Back in verse 9 of the previous chapter, as the crowds were rapidly increasing in size and pressing up against Jesus, we read that the disciples had a small boat ready for him in case the crowds would begin to crush him. Here now he's using that boat and he speaks this parable. It's oftentimes called the parable of the sower or the parable of the seed, but in reality, it's the parable of the soils, and the soils refer to the condition of the human heart. There's about 40 different parables in the Gospels. Over the years, I've heard some squirrely teachings on some of them. Since parables are stories intended to teach spiritual truths, they can be easily mishandled and misapplied. So if you wouldn't mind, let's briefly talk about some principles for interpreting the parables in the Gospels. First off, I'd say keep each parable in its context. Obviously, that's true for any passage of Scripture, but it's especially true for parables. 
One of my favorite parables, the one that's called the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, unfortunately, I've heard some very odd teachings related to that story simply because it's not kept in its proper context. The context of that parable is an unsaved and self-righteous lawyer who, upon hearing Jesus say, love your neighbor as yourself, sarcastically asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The main meaning of the parable is not about helping your neighbor or assisting people in need, though we should always strive to do that as believers. That parable was Jesus trying to get an unsaved, stubborn, religious person to see their need for salvation by grace through faith. Uh, Number two, identify the main truth in each parable. Some of the parables have helpful applications, maybe several applications, but even so, Jesus had one primary truth in each parable. In fact, it seems that all of the parables had the same primary truth and theme. And as one well-respected pastor and commentator stated, and I quote, all of the parables in the Gospels are salvation stories in one form or another. I find that that's really true. And so whether it's a parable of the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, or the sower and the seed, it's ultimately about salvation and a right relationship with God. Number three, don't make parables sing and dance. In other words, don't over-spiritualize the parables or turn them into something mystical. Back to the parable of the Good Samaritan, I heard someone teaching that, that Jerusalem represented heaven and Jericho down the road represented hell. And this man was walking on the path towards Jericho or towards hell. And Satan represents the man who attacked him and left him for dead. And on it goes. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Why would Satan attack someone who's already on their way to hell? It just doesn't make sense. And it's missing the whole point of the parable. Number four principle, parables illustrate doctrine, but they don't define it. Listen to this very much-needed quote by Warren Wiersbe, who said, Parables are like mirrors and windows. As mirrors, they help us to see ourselves, and as windows, they help us to see life in God. With that said, parables actually don't make great standalone foundations for theology. They can validate doctrine, but they don't really define doctrine. Otherwise, for example, you could go back to the parable of the Good Samaritan and say the teaching there is that good works make you right with God. Because after all, when that uh, Samaritan man helped the injured man and did all that good work, at the end, Jesus told the unsaved scribe, go and do likewise. Is that the point of the parable, that we should all go out and do good works and that makes us right with God? Of course not. So we have to be very careful there. Number five, let God explain his parables. Even here with the disciples, when they didn't understand this parable, they asked Jesus to explain the meaning here in verse 10. James 1.5 invites us to ask God for wisdom when we lack it. And we always want to compare scripture with scripture. Finally, let's remember parables are God's word. And I add that principle in point because some people treat parables like bedtime stories or Aesop's fables or chicken soup for the soul or little golden books, but these are the holy teachings of Christ himself. Parables are the word of God. They're intended to wake us up and not put us to sleep. Notice how Jesus begins this parable in verse 3 with the command to listen, exclamation point. This word is used 10 times in Mark's gospel, and it emphasizes the importance of not just hearing, but of actually listening. 
God speaks to those who actually listen. Now more than ever, people today need to listen carefully to what God says, and people need to stop trying to twist what God says in his word into what they want it to mean. At this point in his ministry, Jesus was still near Capernaum as he spoke this parable. In fact, the ruins of Capernaum sit near the water's edge on the Sea of Galilee. All around Capernaum, the hillsides were, and still are, used for growing crops. So it's very possible that as Jesus was speaking this parable, he was able to look kind of beyond the crowds into the hills, and perhaps he saw a farmer sowing seed on the hillside. When it came time to plant the seed, the farmers would clear away any growth in their fields until there was nothing but level dirt. Unlike farming today, the dirt was not plowed up beforehand. Instead, Galilean farmers would carry a pouch of seed in a bag on their shoulder and then grab it by the handfuls and toss it into the field. Afterwards, the farmer then might use a type of plow to help scratch the surface of the field just enough to help the seed mix in with the soil. And this was all done normally before the early spring rains came, and this was looking forward to the fall for a harvest of crops. The fields themselves were not fenced in as modern-day fields usually are. Instead, the hillsides of Galilee were crisscrossed by many fields, and in between there were these narrow dirt paths for walking. They were typically about three feet wide. So along with the farmers, travelers could use those same dirt paths. In that familiar story when Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath day and the disciples pick up some handfuls of grain, that would have been them walking on one of those dirt paths. In this parable, there are four key elements to the story. First off, there's the sower, Jesus. Now, we're not given his identity here, but in the same parable in Matthew 13, Jesus said, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. Anyone who shares the gospel today is a sower. And listen, one of our privileges and responsibilities as believers is to sow the seed of God's word into the lives of people. Secondly, we have the seed, which is the gospel or the word of God. Thirdly, we have the soil. This represents human hearts. Just as a piece of land can either become a beautiful garden or an ugly landfill, the human heart is either redeemed or unredeemed. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to visit the very beautiful Bouchard Gardens in Victoria, British Columbia, and I was very surprised to learn that those beautiful gardens used to be an abandoned gravel pit. In Israel today, where the Valley of Gehenna was once a burning trash dump, it's now a very pretty public park. And in the same way, the Word of God is able to transform the unsaved heart into a saved soul. So then the fourth thing is the sequence, the four types of soil or four kinds of dirt. In this parable, a sower went out to sow and some of the seed fell by the wayside, landing on those hard dirt walking paths that ran through the fields. Those paths were pounded down into almost like a concrete-like hardness by the constant foot traffic of people and animals. With no seed uh, ever penetrating the hard ground, the birds came along and they got to enjoy a free breakfast. In verse 15 then, Jesus likens this to the callous heart. This person does not understand the gospel, not because the gospel is so difficult to comprehend, but because their heart is so hard and callous. There's nothing faulty or flawed with the message. The problem lies with a hardened heart. 
Over the years, we've all attempted to share the gospel with people who just flat out rejected it because their hearts are so hardened. Several years ago, I was attempting to share the gospel with a coworker, and as I was, he literally stuck his hand directly in front of my face, like inches away, cut me off, telling me that he did not want to discuss the subject. I respected his request, and then sadly, he died a few years later from complications of diabetes. I stood at his graveside funeral, not hearing what the minister was saying, but only thinking of him sticking his hand in front of my face and refusing to even hear the gospel. Let me mention that a lot of people today have hardened hearts because, like that coworker, they refuse to even listen. But some hearts are in danger because they're open to everything. They allow all kinds of different influences and beliefs to come in, making their heart callous to the real truth. The story is told of Elvis Presley having around his neck a cross, a star of David, and another religious symbol, a symbol, excuse me. When his cousin asked him why he was wearing different symbols, Presley famously responded, I don't want to miss out on going to heaven on a technicality. The opposite of faith isn't just unbelief, it's also false belief. Back in verse 5, some of the seed landed on stony places, and while it sprang up quickly, it had no roots. As I mentioned earlier, the main preparation of a farmer was to clear everything away in the field, and then when the time came to plant, the field was just merely a plot of dirt. The farmer had no idea of what rocks may lie beneath the surface. Sometimes there were limestone beds below, so while the seed would initially take root, it would quickly wither for lack of any root system below and because rainwaters could not penetrate. In verses 16 to 17, Jesus likens the second soil to the careless heart. That sounds like the title of a Hallmark romance movie, The Careless Heart. But this is actually the person who hears the gospel, basically likes what they hear, and then responds emotionally. But after a period of time, when persecution or difficulty arise, they abandon their so-called faith. Jesus was not saying that such a person was actually saved and then lost their salvation, but rather that such a person never possessed genuine salvation to begin with. It was an emotional experience and there was no spiritual depth. Going back to verse 7, some of the seed fell on a part of the field that had uh, weeds in it or the seeds of weeds in it. I walked, I remember walking by this guy one time and he was working on this dirt lot and he was just scraping the weeds with a shovel off the top of the soil. And I thought to myself, that's going to last about a week and then those weeds will be right back up because the roots are still there. If you want to really get the weeds out, you have to dig down and get the roots. Well, in this parable, as the seed began to grow, so did the weeds. And in this third example uh, that Jesus gives, the thorns from the weeds choked out the good seed. Notice in verse 7 that this seed yielded no crop. In verses 18 to 19, Jesus likens this third soil to the crowded heart. Like the previous person, this is someone who hears the word of God, likes what they hear, and makes a superficial profession of faith. But then the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches begin to choke this person's pseudo-faith until it disappears. Once again, this is not a person that was truly saved and then lost their salvation. This is someone who was just not saved to begin with. Back in verse 8 then, Jesus describes the fourth type of soil, which was good soil. 
and this soil allowed the seed to penetrate, to take root, and to yield a beautiful crop. In verse 20, Jesus describes his fourth soil as being the converted heart. This person not only hears and understands the word, but their new life produces fruit as the evidence of their genuine salvation. As John Stott had said, the Christian should not resemble a Christmas tree, but rather a fruit tree. Just so there's no confusion here, there's only one true conversion, and that was with the good soil. And while all the others had different types of circumstances and responses, what they had in common was there was no fruit. God's word planted into the soil of faith and grace always bears fruit, obviously some more than others, but nevertheless, there's always going to be fruit. In John 15, Jesus explained that any branch that does not bear fruit, describing the unsaved person, is taken away and thrown into the fire. It's like dead wood that bears no fruit and has no purpose. One final thought on this parable, with each of the hearts that bore no fruit, they were influenced by a different enemy. Take a look at this. With the callous heart, the devil snatches away the seed that fell on the hard soil. With the careless heart, the flesh gives counterfeit feelings of religious emotions. And with the crowded heart, the things of this world smother and suffocate the seed. So you have the devil the flesh, and the world, all fighting against the unsaved and against God's desire for their salvation. And so in closing, I want to encourage all of us to be seed sowers, to sow the gospel and the word of God into the lives of those around us. And so until our next podcast, then, may the Lord bless you and keep you.